You're fine. You can breathe now. <laughs> uh, I know. I was kind of holding my breath there. Sorry, a little, little podcast um, inside baseball here. We always uh, like to record a little bit of silence at the beginning. Makes it very easy to get rid of our noise later on. And Meredith was breathing directly into the microphone <laughs> as I was trying to get that. And I was, So either Darth Vader was here or it was you um, trying to blow up my eardrums with your uh, lower breathing there. Um, hello, everybody. Um, I am Pedro Amador, and welcome to Gritty Reboot. And I'm Meredith Amador, and uh, we're happy to be here today. Yeah, listen, I, I know we're here to talk about Hellboy. Before we get into Hellboy, uh, this one thing I wanted to mention, it was fresh in my mind. It doesn't really have anything to do with the movie unless you count it as a documentary, even though it's a Dutch series, technically, because it was two episodes. But my God, was Woodstock 99 a worse shit show than we actually remembered? Yes, I didn't remember the s- severity of the fires. Yeah, yeah, we we were just spoiler like, alert. By yeah, way. yeah. Uh, spoiler alert: If you weren't alive in 1999, have never ever heard of Woodstock '99. Uh, that's what occurred. It basically descended into a riot after uh, three days of uh, debauchery and corporate greed run amok. And I think we were sort of surprised if we watched it. Like there were explosions in the event. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, it really the was like a war tanks. zone. Yeah, it really was like a war zone over there. It's just something we weren't ready for in the least watching that documentary. It was it was very cool. Uh, I recommend it. Uh, Woodstock 99 on, on, on Netflix. You know, actually, that's something I've sort of messed up. Obviously, you don't guys don't know this because you don't live with us. But I have a plan or a system when I try to present things to us because, you know, we both work. And we have a daughter, so it limits the amount of time of things that we can watch. And trust me, we've seen all of the Dora Explorer and anything like that we could ever possibly get our eyes on. So to get content for ourselves, I sort of always have a plan. I have like an A show, maybe a B show, and um, usually a 30-minute sitcom. But as of this point, I'm like a crazy wild man. I have like eight shows that we're bouncing in between. We technically have an A show, and that's Better Call Saul. We're desperately we're desperately trying to get there before the rest of the show ended, and uh, we did not make that at all. We're only midway through season three, I think, at the moment. But we do love that show. But we got what else we have going on? We got Alone, which is um, yeah, that's like a survival uh, show. Survival show. Yeah, that's a, a reality show. That's uh, I think history or discovery, and then we have uh, Riverdale. Yep, we're which, watching Riverdale, which is the exact opposite of a reality show. Yeah, uh, I I just wanted to watch it for its you know soap opery like appeal. Yeah, and then we have uh, Untold, which we've been watching, uh, which is also brilliant. We got that great look at uh, Manti Teo. Yeah. And uh, his fake girlfriend, which is legit one of the craziest things that ever happened in all of sports. And then um, they also did the Malice in the Palace as well, which is also a, a huge defining moment that I, I it's seared in my brain. The image of Ron Artest leaping in the stands to try to murder a fan. <laughs> um, no, I've just been a wild man about it, but it's been nice to go back and do something a little bit different because we'd really just had that kind of set system of like one show and then a 30 minute. We don't even have a 30 minute right now. We finished off uh, The Kids in the Hall, which is a, a very laughable title today. Oh. We do. I feel so depressed about the kids in the hall because we, I loved the original show. It yeah. was one of my favorite shows of all time when mm-hmm. I when I was a teenager. And watching watching what we saw was oh was not good. Yeah, I did well we did a real deep dive into the kids in the hall. And I went even deeper than you because I actually took the time in between while we were watching this show to watch the movie. 
brain candy uh, from 94 or 95, I think. Um, and, you know, I was kind of surprised as much as I, I didn't care for the two reboots they did. Apparently they did a reboot in 2011 on IFC and it's God awful. Oh my God. It's a reboot. Does that mean we have to talk about Eventually, it? Eventually. Yes. We, and so it does tie into the oh, podcast, no. but yes, we can cover it at some point. <laughs> now that's a reboot because they completely changed directions and it's like a narrative show about like death coming to a small town in Canada. Yeah. Um, and they tried to make their kind of, um, sketch comedy work in that. <laughs> oh my God, does it not work? work it at all it does not work yeah, honestly like it's not even like there's a good joke every show i mean it's like there might be a nice skit or joke every three or four shows and there was only 11 in the season um but then they did a revival which is different than a reboot because it's basically like an extra season of the original show yeah uh because it even had the same theme song and it tried to maintain the same vibes but i mean it's been what like 35 plus years since they yeah. were all together doing that show um a long long time and like i said it's it will deliver a few gags here and there that revival from amazon hit a lot more notes than the other show ever did and gave me a few chuckle worthy moments and a few quotables that necessarily weren't funny like how you know i know whenever you take a shower you like your water hot hot yeah. you know little things like that that were more um a good quote than necessarily funny, even though I will never forget the DJ at the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great yeah. dark joke. Dark. That was probably my favorite joke of <laughs> yeah. the entire what, what was, thing. What's the name of that song? Oh, I, I totally blanking. I, oh I my don't God. know. I so, I feel so bad. This isn't a video podcast. Cause the look on Meredith's face right now was like, <gasps> like the test, like she just walked <laughs> into class and she was like, I forgot to study. <laughs> like, like that was the in look. My underwear. Yeah. That was the look on her face right now. So anyway, none of this has anything to do with Hellboy. No. Uh, right now there are, are two or three loyal listeners looking at their watch going like, when the hell does the Hellboy conversation start? Gentlemen. It begins right now. <laughs> First of all, I want to take you on a little journey to a magical period known as 2004. In 2004, things were a little bit different in Hollywood than they would be today. Yeah. Um, superhero movies, while I think X-Men came out in 2000, right on the nose of the millennium. Um, Spider-Man came out the year after. This is still very much in that first generation of superhero movies post X-Men. Yes. Um, we're still four years away from Iron Man or five years. Iron Man was either 2008 or 2009. I don't recall offhand. But it, we're still a ways from it. Um, so I, I want to say, like, the, the, the top comic book movie of the year was Spider-Man 2. So I want to have that firmly in your brains as I talk about the era of which this movie comes from. Because every movie should be judged somewhat from the era of which it was made. Yeah. And you should take a look about what its contemporaries were doing. And was it in line with them? Or was it further ahead? You know, did it age well because it? Or, you know, is it just a forgotten relic because it's just some oddity? Like something like My Superhero Ex-Girlfriend starring Uma Thurman, which I think came out the year after. Yeah. Um, But uh, Hellboy is very much a product of its era in that it does a very nice job in giving us an origin story, um, a setup for Hellboy without necessarily telling us exactly how everything about Hellboy's world came to be. Yeah. The movie's sort of an introduction to the character, but everything that is Hellboy and the paranormal uh, research, that's already set up and it's already there. And we just sort of deal with it. You know, we have a proxy in the movie. Um, um, 
he's played by uh, Rupert Everett, and his character name escapes me at the moment. And he's basically who we are attached to and, and following on. Rupert Everett, by the way, also attached to another reboot later on. Uh, he plays uh, Leo in the Charmed reboot. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we can cover that at some point years down the road when we start <laughs> doing TV shows. So um, I see you right now you're staring to your notes, almost salivating. What do you want to say about Hellboy straight off the gate? Well, I was just going to say that you were talking about the era that this was made and that there was not a whole lot of uh, of comic book movies out there that were successful. Um, this movie took six years to get made. That's how long Del Toro fought to get this made. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. Um, and it's weird to think Del Toro had to fight to get this thing made because he just came off a successful comic book movie a couple years Blade later two. in Blade 2. Yeah. And Blade 2 is, in, in my opinion, better than the original film. Um, even even though, I'll be honest, I haven't done a deep dive in that series in a long time. No, I, I agree with you, but I'm a huge Del Toro fan. Yeah, no, I, I, and nothing, nothing against Stephen Norrington, who did the original film, uh, a man whose career was ruined by Sean Connery. Um, no, they, the original's fine. Yeah, the original was fine. Uh, Stephen Norrington, Sean Connery, they worked together in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is a couple years after this, by yeah. the way. Uh, one of the worst comic movies ever, and Sean Connery and Stephen Norrington, I don't think ever worked in Hollywood again. But ba- back to Hellboy, you know, we talked about it a little bit last week with uh, Robert England. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a part is made for an actor. Yeah. And obviously Del Toro crafted everything about his version of Hellboy to be perfect for the man he had in mind, Ron Perlman. Yes. And that is the marriage that we have in this film. Ron Perlman is Hellboy. Yeah, and both the creator and the director wanted Ron Perlman. Mm-hmm. They actually did a, a small little game, and they were like, okay, when they were first starting out writing this movie, uh, they were like, okay, who do we cast as the lead? And they both said at the exact same moment, Ron Perlman, because they both had him in mind for this part. And it, it's easy to see why, because Ron Perlman is an actor who has experience uh, wearing makeup. Um, so that wasn't going to be an issue for him, but he had the blue collar vibe to be Hellboy. Yeah. That attitude that, you know, Hellboy, despite his grand beginnings and, you know, what he is ultimately bred for, he's a blue collar guy. Yeah. Like he just, he wants to drink beer, play with his kitties and, and chomp on a cigar. You know, that's what he likes to do. He's he's a simple man at the end of the day, even if he is a demon. And Ron Perlman nails that effortlessly. Yeah. And that's sort of the thing that, that that is amazing about the movie coming from the era of which it did. Comic book movies were a little bit more simple in 2004, and that was to their detriment um, because it, people were still trying to chase that wave of Spider-Man and X-Men. And trying to get their guy, you know, into the stratosphere as a superhero movie. It was something that could be successful, but it wasn't the force it was going to be in like five or six years once Iron Man came out. Yeah. So with all that being said, Hellboy has to also introduce the character and the world and all of these monsters and all of these outlandish things in an era when it's just not incredibly common. You know, because once again, superhero movies are Spider-Man and Daredevil at this time. You know, the, the you know, the, the bigger guys, you know, um, that's the reason I always talk about Punisher gets a ton of adaptations because it's a guy with a gun. It's easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a Hellboy is a uh, spawn from hell who fights big giant monsters. Yeah. He's much more difficult to do and to introduce. And Del Toro does it 
effortlessly. Yes. And that's the thing. Like one of the things I wanted to bring about Del Toro is that he had come into Hollywood after having a ton of success as a Mexican born director with Kronos. And he comes in to make mimic with Mira Sorvino. And on that movie, he is paired with producer Harvey Weinstein, who was an absolute nightmare to work with and almost got Del Toro to completely abandon Hollywood entirely, which is, you know, fuck Harvey Weinstein. I don't think yeah, I need to be any, yeah, any more clear about that. But <clears throat> now, Grace, I'm only talking in a cinematic perspective. He was almost known as a hatchet man in the day. He would cut horror movies up or really anything like that that he thought was a little bit low class. If you made an Oscar caliber movie, oh, he'd suck your dick right there on the spot. But if you were making genre fair, he would take a hatchet to that and cut it down and chop it to where things didn't make any sense. And if you watch Mimic, it feels like a movie where things don't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And obviously, you know, you learn more about Harvey Weinstein. He had a huge vendetta against Mira Sorvino. Yeah. Um, and made it almost his mission to make sure she did not have a successful career. And obviously Mimic is a part of that. And it almost takes down Del Toro as well. But Del Toro realized that he couldn't take his standard sensibilities coming from Mexican cinema into Hollywood. He needed to try and attempt to make more of a Hollywood movie. And Blade 2 was the answer to that. And this is also running right in that door. But because he had some success in Blade 2, he's able to take some of those Del Toro sensibilities. Some of that creature work that he loves to do. You know, the outcast monster theme that he absolutely is in love with. He brings that over to Hellboy. And this fusion just works in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, it really does. And, you know, going back and watching it, I think at the time I thought the movie was good, but not great. And now I'm like, wow, man, he did this in 2004. The tour yeah. was really ahead of the game. No, really I always loved the Hellboy movie. Great imagery, you know, working well within the PG-13 framework, which I mean, was the requirement. You sure as hell weren't going to make an R-rated comic book movie unless it was a Punisher film. Even then, the Punisher didn't get R-rated when they did it in the 2000s. You weren't going to get that then. And he's able to do it effortlessly and deliver um weird high budget cult film if you will yeah um because uh, one of the things i i I do want to mention as well is yes hellboy got a sequel but hellboy was not the most successful movie financially um it was the 50th highest grossing film of that year um so it took a lot of fight to get a sequel made uh four years later talking about the studio you want to know who was going to play uh hellboy tell me Oh God, Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel was t- was tapped to play Hellboy. Luckily, he turned it down, and then the studio still had him in mind to play Abe Sapien. That would have been far, far worse. Um, <laughs> far worse for Hellboy. I, Del Toro did not want that for Hellboy. I, I can kind of see it. That gruff voice could could have worked, but. Um, I've always thought as Dominic Toretto, he kind of struggles to play a normal person in those movies a little bit. Um, he's much more at home in the bombastic action sequences. Yeah. And listen, Perlman's able to do both. You know, that's yeah. what makes him a fantastic actor. Um, you know, I learned that, you know, I was a big fan of Ron Perlman even before uh, this movie kicks up. My mom made me watch the uh, Beauty and the Beast reboot, which we'll cover, I guess, at some point when we've reached 150 episodes. Um, and that featured um, him as the beast and Linda Hamilton as the beauty. And they fought crime in New York for some reason. Yeah. Because that's all you could do in the 90s on television. Like, well, we're going to do a weird high concept thing. What do they do? Uh, they fight crime. They fight crime or you run a hotel. Those are your only options for TV shows <laughs> in the 90s. Be that as it may, like 
Perlman isn't exactly what you would consider like a Shakespearean actor or anything like that. But no. man, he is just so good in this part. He was born to play it. Um, and you just mentioned Abe Sapien. Um, I played by Doug Jones under the under the costume. And the voice is provided by David Hyde Pierce in this one. And he it's costume and makeup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, Doug Jones spent more time in the makeup chair than Ron Perlman did. I couldn't believe it because you don't see any part of Doug Jones. You can still see like Ron Perlman's eyes and kind of the shape of his nose and mouth. The only thing you see on Ron Perlman is his eyelids. That's the only thing that's legit? Yeah, that's the only thing that's legit is his eyelids. (laughs) Okay. Doug Jones spent five to seven hours in the chair, in the makeup chair. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, uh, Ron Perlman spent four to five. So there's quite a difference there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I found another fun story about Ron Perlman. Um, there was a, a boy that had requested, and this was about, I think, in 2010, 2011. There was a boy who had requested with the Make-A-Wish Foundation to meet Hellboy. Not Ron Perlman, but to meet Hellboy. So Ron Perlman, out of his own pocket, paid for um, the makeup team from that movie to go to the hospital and put in the four hours to dress him up like Hellboy. Oh, man. And go and meet this kid for a Make-A-Wish meeting. And there's some great pictures of it. And Ron Perlman did nothing to promote this and to say, like, look at me. Look at what I did. It's just something Ron Perlman wanted to do. Um, Wow. And listen, we're throwing the praise on Ron Perlman. We love the guy. Yeah. Uh, By the way, also great fact on that story. The kid survived. He got an experimental treatment and he beat that cancer. He's alive today. I like to think that uh, Hellboy had something yeah, to do with that. Yeah, all thanks to Ron Perlman. Yeah, that damn right it did. <laughs> um, so yeah, if if it's if you can't guess by this point, we really love Hellboy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, ooh, it's got big shoes to fill in the reboot. Well, I, I think one of the reasons I mentioned before we get right into talking about um the newer reboot is I wanted to mention that like. This movie and this franchise is this movie. No one knew who Hellboy was in 2003 before these movies started showing trailers. No one cared. You know, Hellboy wasn't a top comic book, wasn't a top seller. This movie barely broke $50 million domestically. Um, The sequel did a little better. These weren't exactly huge movies that were tearing up the box office. So with that being said, that the fan base for this movie is based around Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlman. And only those guys and what they did with it. Why would you reboot something that even with an Oscar winning director has struggled to make back its money? Mm. It's absolutely baffling. And you know what the producers for Hellboy 2019 got for it? They got a big flop. Yeah. Yeah. They got one of the most unsuccessful films of the year because everybody who wants to see a Hellboy movie wants to see Ron Perlman in the makeup. Yeah. And and you know what? That's what I thought. And it's why I skipped Hellboy 2019 when it made its original theatrical run, I did not see it till this last weekend when we watched it for the show. Um, and I wanted to be fair to it. And honestly, I, I'm glad I did. Cause I feel like I was a little bit more fair to it. Cause I, the initial critical reception was vile. Um, worst comic book adaptation ever pointless, uh, soulless, you know, a lot, a lot of comments like that. And when I sat down to actually watch the movie, I found a soulless is something I can agree with, but It was an ultimately watchable adventure, even if that's not exactly high praise. Let let me put it this way. Even though the the movie is R-rated, I think 
the 2019 version would be more at home in the contemporaries of 2004 by how a by the number story it is. Mm -hmm. And the 2004 version could easily fit into 2019 when people are more willing to take risks with superhero movies and do other things. Absolutely. And that's sort of a weird thing to say, like they're almost of different eras, (laughs) despite of when they, despite when they were made, but it's, it's just what I feel when watching it. What was your takeaway from watching the reboot for the first time? It's a little bit unfair because I'm I'm taking it a lot like a lot of the Hellboy fan. It's hard to make those movies better. So I was a little hindered in that when I watched it for the first time. Uh I was holding it I was holding it as a comparison to the originals. Yeah. Now obviously, you know, with a lot of reboots and it's incredibly difficult to divorce anything like that from the original film. Um, and it's always going to weigh on judging any kind of movie like this, especially Hellboy that is truly beloved by its, its fans. Um, so I guess let, let's, um, let, let's get out there right now, the positives. And I think we can both agree on this one, David Harbour. Yeah. Um, he was in a fantastic choice to pick up the role from Ron Perlman. He does bring that blue collar attitude. The same thing that Ron Perlman really excelled at. Even if this part um, isn't as interesting as what Ron got to play, I think he is pretty good here. Yeah, he took the role very, very seriously. He got in good shape. He had never worked out before. This is his first actual stint in working out. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, he had never worked out before. He's a big dude, yeah. Uh, He actually went, and when he worked out, he worked out in a suit, so he would get used to having something on him. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um. He he took he just took this role very seriously. Well, that's good. That I mean, that's what you should do, and it does show in the movie. I think his performance is one of the stronger ones. And also, I, I want to say I I like his Hellboy makeup. Obviously, when you're competing against a guy like Guillermo del Toro, and what he's known for is his creatures, those creature effects, the makeup. You know, you think of Pan's Labyrinth, you imagine the creature with the eyeball on his hands. I know he has a name, but I just forgot it. But the point is, those are, I mean, Del Toro just craps those out like it's not a big deal. Well, he's so good <laughs> yeah. at monster flicks. He's so he's such an, an imaginative director mm-hmm. that he's able to come up with these original looks yeah. and, and feels. Exactly, yeah. It, it, Poor Neil Marshall. <laughs> yeah, Neil Marshall, he directs the, the 2019 version. And uh, I, for, personally, I like Neil Marshall. Um, he directed uh, two cult films I absolutely love, uh, Dog Soldiers, um, probably one of the best alien ripoffs. It's, it's with werewolves and set in Ireland. Uh, fantastic movie. And The Descent, uh, which is a little bit more popular. A lot more people have seen that. Great claustrophobic film. That when it makes its twist about uh, cave-dwelling monsters, I am all about it. Yeah. Um, and I think the character work is done well enough in the movie. Uh, but after that, his career kind of struggled till he went to television. And he didn't just go to TV and do random episodes. Neil Marshall directed almost every big action-heavy episode of Game of Thrones there ever was. So he is no slouch when it comes to being a director. No. And still, in this movie, it almost doesn't help with the exception of some well-done action sequences. I think, like, the giant fight is exciting. Um, Actually, most of the action sequences in the movie are well done because that is Neil Marshall's forte. Yeah, this movie is is a lot of good action, poor exposition, poor story. The story is all over the place. They try to introduce all of these different Mm storylines and and characteristics that— 
aren't needed. I, I I think my favorite scene in the movie is the giant fight. I I love that scene. I think it's good action right there. Yeah, the giant fight really is fantastic stuff. I mean, that's that's why you want to go see an action movie like this, so you can get some sort of fantastic sequence like that. And th- that's pretty well done, even if there is apparently a glaring um, mistake. Hellboy's uh, Hand of Doom switches arms. So at one point, it's 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 on the, the left hand instead of the right. Um, well, it's supposed to be the right hand of Doom. That's from the comic book. Yeah, that's the way it always is. But they switched it in that scene. You know, it's basically a movie that's struggling to get any kind of fan acceptance, just kind of stumbles its way into pissing fans off and didn't even probably realize it. The only reason why I think that they probably switched it up was probably to keep a free hand for the uh, David Harbour. Um, I know he's right-handed, mm-hmm. so they probably kept it on the left because of that. Now, I know that Ron Perlman is left-handed, so the right-handed Doom was fine. He was able to put the right hand on, and he could still function with his left hand. Oh, okay. So that could be the only reason why I think that they would might have done that, but sure. still, you're pissing off fans. Yeah, exactly. And some overworked effects house is having to compensate, you know, to do a real quick change. They never get around to it and they hope nobody notices. But obviously people did because, I mean, that's just the way the Internet Internet's going to well, work. Well, it's the way fan, fandom is. I yeah, mean, well, def- most Star definitely. Star Wars fans, hello. Yeah, I mean, it's the same. any kind of comic book fans like that, everyone's going to notice what's in those little details. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about earlier about how the story was told. And I think like that's that's the biggest problem here, because even though they were able to almost compete against what Del Toro did creature design wise, the, the Baba Yaga and the way that some of the giants look. Yeah, the Baba Yaga is disgusting. Yeah, that, that's that was all, well done. Oh, that's really well done there. There's great creature work here. Uh, uh, there's an Oscar winner who worked on it. Who's, I, I can't who's not, I, I can't remember his name at this moment in time, but no slouch. Good stuff around here. But if some of that money would have gone into crafting the screenplays that they used to form this movie into something a little bit more coherent, it would have worked. I, I was reminded of a, of, of a strange, uh, a strange comparison. Scoob, uh, which is the Scooby uh, prequel they did a couple of years ago, animated film, uh, because if you're a fan of Scooby-Doo, you are going to want, you know, an old guy getting the mask pulled off and you meddling yeah. kids, right? You certainly didn't want a Hanna-Barbera superhero team up movie. And that's what Scoob was because they wanted to start a Hanna-Barbera cinematic universe. And this movie introduces so many concepts and themes. And we have Thomas Hayden Church as the the blue beetle. That's not right. But he's a character who runs deep within the Hellboy lore. uh, So deep that I don't know who he is. But but the, the, the fact is they introduced this character. Just so they can say, like, okay, when we do these sequels, we'll have a lot more we can lean on, and we'll have more of our Dark Horse lore and Hellboy lore ready to go, and the movie just drowns in lore because of it. Yeah. Um, Way too much going on. You have Daniel Day Kim, who does a fine job, but he's some sort of panther, and I don't know why. Like, I, listen, I, I know it tells us why, but I don't know why that's shoved into this movie. It's not needed. Yeah, because if you go back and look at the original film, you can sort of write down what your plot points are and what some of those elements really are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because you have, you know, Rasputin, he brought Hellboy in, he went away, he came back, he summoned Samael, and Hellboy searches for any kind of acceptance as he wants his ex-quasi-girlfriend to return. Yeah. And everything comes into there and Hellboy's quest for some sort of independence and finding his identity. 
This movie in 2019, however, has none of those things about like Hellboy kind of finding his place in the world. That's kind of secondary, weirdly enough. Instead, there's all this world building and all these things about the, you know, the plight of the bad guy who is always underwritten. There's the just Cyrus Club, which I think is stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's a great example. Like, you have all these guys who, who want to kill Hellboy and it's sort of a. It, I want to say it's a running joke, but the movie doesn't really joke about it for the most part. It's just it something that keeps happening. Yeah, I think it hurts the movie because they kill him. Well, they they get the upper hand on him, which is strange. Yeah, Hellboy's a I jobber. Mean, they, in that sequence. Yeah, yeah. They, he's a total jobber. He's a jobber. Yeah. And I don't understand why. It's like he's <laughs> yeah. supposed to be this powerful Hellboy. Mm-hmm. Then why don't he act like it? Yeah, and it, it's even all the more confusing when the giants come in slaughter the entire Osiris club and then yeah. Hellboy is able to defeat the giants. I mean, granted he's on death's door, but he still defeats them after all of that bullshit. It's infuriating if you're watching as a viewer, because you, if you've never seen a Hellboy movie, you just don't understand, you know, you, you don't understand this character's power yeah. level in any way, shape or form. And the movie doesn't really help you with that. I mean, just not to mention, you know, the movie's just, you know, overstuffed with all these ideas and it leads to paper thin characters um, which is not something you could say about the original film. Um, it just doesn't have, you have to bring a level of whimsy into a movie about a character who deals with the creatures of hell and trolls and giants and all this sort of thing. And the movie doesn't have it. It attempts to have a layer of grittiness, which I think they interpret it as a lot of blood and gore. And it does have that. So if you're a fan of those, yeah, if you're a fan of those things, there, there is a lot of blood and gore. There's, there's, um, there's F bombs almost, (laughs) almost sort of inserted in at random points just so they could feel a little more edgy. I saw that there were 26, Fucks in 20, the 26, 26 yeah, fucks? I think 26 is. That's a decent amount of fucks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I want that put in my tombstone. That's a decent amount of fucks. <laughs> the thing about it is, is I feel like this movie was pushed into the rated R territory as a gimmick. Um, because it's not a mature story in any way, shape or form. Like there's nothing in the narrative that leads you into needing the R rating. Now, like I said, it does lead to cool gore, especially like when the, those demons that are summoned by the blood queen at the end lay waste to, uh, London. That's actually a really cool scene and great gore. Um, but it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, mean a whole lot at the end of the day. It's just some fun CG gore. From what I was reading in the comic books, Hellboy is a little bit of an immature character. Like, certainly, you and I, where our immaturity lies in our teenage years. Mm-hmm. Hellboy is a perpetual teenager, the, the king of arrested yeah. development. So, uh, I think that had something to do with it. And here's the thing, and, uh, and you know, obviously, we have to compare the two movies over and over again, but the first movie talks about that a lot. Hellboy is clearly a teenager in that movie, and Ron yeah. Perlman plays him as such. And, you know, only Ron Perlman can make a character sort of that immature and kind of selfish, endearing. But that's the guilt, the, the gift of Ron Perlman. But they try to do this a lot more in the reboot. And, and just the concept never really comes together because they don't want to commit any time no. to that idea. They just want to let you know, like, he's an immature character. He doesn't have it all figured out. All right, moving on. You know, they, they just <laughs> want to get to their next sequence. And, and, and I understand that, but... We don't have a feel on this character, and because it's a reboot, like we just can't take things from a previous movie and just throw those attributes on the character. You know, we don't know that if we're a new viewer. Yeah, and you know, because of that, I mean, this movie ends up, as I said, um, a mile wide but an inch deep. 
And that's really the best way to describe everything about the characterizations and the screenplay in this movie. And I mean, it's probably the biggest negative element of the film. Too many characters, too many stories, all sizzle, uh, no steak. Yeah, and you have Mila Jovovich as well. Okay, first off, I like Mila Jovovich. I know you do. But I, I'm, you're been, a guy. I've been a big yeah yeah. I've been I've been <laughs> a big fan for a long time. Uh, even before The Fifth Element, I liked uh, Mila Jovovich. She's and, just not a good actress. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like I can list a couple of performances I, I've really liked her in. Um, he got Game, uh, fantastic work. But I can tell you that Mila Jovovich uh, called this movie. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, she said from the very beginning when before they even started uh filming it that uh it was going to be a, a a bust. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. But then she's well, a fire agent. After they filmed it uh she really should. Yeah, she should. She's a fire agent. Tell her to stop working with that untalented guy. You know the one she married? Yeah. <laughs> after they filmed it, she hoped that this would become a cult classic. What I have got to tell you, Mila. Oh, uh, no, that, that's the worst part about it. You know, all the great work done by those effects guys and everything like that. Um, it's all just going to be forgotten just because the movie never should have been made. Um, even if I did find it watchable, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, for our purposes, atrocious would have been better. Yeah. Right. Because that's what we got last week with Nightmare on Elm Street reboot. We got atrocious. And that was good to talk about. Um, this movie, at the end of the day, is, is just sort of watchable and, and, and draws endless comparisons to, to the other movie. And as I said before, this movie was R-rated, but ends up having less balls than I think the original film did. And there's two... It's just the blood. Yeah, I mean, there's two things that I want to draw a parallel to in the original film. Cigar chomping is one of the first. Yeah. Uh, Hellboy has a cigar in almost every scene. There's smoke, you know, atmosphere in almost every shot that he is in. Uh, because that's a big part of who he is and his character. And because you can't smoke in 2019 Hollywood, that element is not a part of Hellboy. Now, once again, I didn't watch Eagle Eyed in every sequence, but I could not find when I typed in Hellboy 2019 cigar comma smoking. I didn't find a single Google single Google image about it. Um, can't say Google for some reason. Today. <laughs> so I don't know why, why that is. You know, they, they axed all that out. And it's unfortunate, but that's just what modern Hollywood does. But the other thing that's gone that I think was a nice part of Hellboy's characterization, especially in the original film. Once again, I can't speak to the comics because I've only read an issue where there, and it was probably almost 20 years ago. Christianity. Yeah. That's a big part of Ron Perlman's character. He always has that crucifix on him. When we're first introduced to Professor Bloom later in the movie, I mean, early in the, the Del Toro film, we see him praying. He's got, the crucifix right on. I mean, he's got a, a a rosary right on him and the crucifix hanging down. And we later see the crucifix tighten the hand with the cross hanging down after he's dead. Mm-hmm. And Hellboy is mourning him on the top of the building as the rain comes down on him. You know, that Christianity is a big part of who Hellboy is. And at the very end, Rupert Everett's character throws him the rosary and he yeah. catches it in his hand and it burns the cross right on him. The one thing he'd held on him, the one thing that he held as the only thing he has from his father, it burnt him. And that's the moment when he knows, I can't do this. There's not someone flashing out loud. That's what that means. But Del Toro's a skilled enough director to use those little things to tell you more about a character. 
even without just flat out screaming at your face who he's supposed to be. Yeah. He can show you. And those little elements are missing from this movie. And I'm not just talking specifically about the Christianity or, or those. Those are just good examples. You know, you can't talk about God in a movie because people get weirded out. And you can't show smoking in a movie because it's killed a bunch of people. And apparently Hollywood's to blame. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the cancer. Hollywood's the problem. They, yeah. made, they made cigarettes look cool. It's like, no, the kid who dropped out of high school who keeps hanging around the <laughs> he's hanging around the lunchroom. He's the one who made cigarettes super look senior. cool. Yeah, exactly. The super seniors. That's who. There are so many other elements to the 2019 version that just fall flat because of just bad screenwriting yeah and it i mean that i mean that's really all it is at the end of the day they're shoving as many screenplays as they could together and they're trying to make it work um they had as you might guess they had production issues i mean i almost want to say take a shot every time we talk about a movie a re- one of these reboots having production issues but this one did uh david harbour apparently walked off set more than once yeah because they kept oh you know more. Ha- yeah they kept having reshoots and yeah. David Harbour, like I told you in the beginning, he put his heart and soul into this project. And he was doing his best acting. And for them to have constant reshoots, he was like, I'm done. I've had enough of this. I sit in a chair for makeup, even though his makeup only take takes about two to three hours. But still, you know, that that's that's two that's to three hours. a lot it, of time. Yeah, that's two to three hours out of his day. Yeah. That he's having to come in and do that. And... It's also tough to get in the mindset of that character again after leaving it for months to be on the set of Stranger Things or whatever it is he was doing. So th- those can get frustrating. The producers, they end up having a dick measuring contest with the director. They fired his longtime cinematographer somewhere in the middle of production. And I mean, that's, you, you kind of don't do that, you know. Like if a pitcher's having a great year, you don't go out there and fire his catcher. Yeah. You know, you just it's just something that's not really done in Hollywood unless you're trying to send a message. You're going to do what we say or you'll be fired, too. Yeah. And that was the message sent. And, and I'm sure Neil Marshall was a good soldier and did whatever the producers wanted at that point, And they got this. Well, I can tell you that Neil Marshall has touted this as one of his biggest regrets. Yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt it. Like I said, he's a very talented director. Um, but, you know, there, there's more to just planning your shots and talking to your actors when you're directing a Hollywood movie. You have to keep the suits docile. Yeah. You have to keep them content. You have to make sure they look at that and they're like, oh, my decision to hire you was the best decision I made in my life. You know, that that's sort of the goal. And like, those are things that like a Brett Ratner is really good at, you know, and I'm not saying that to pick on Brett Ratner, <laughs> piece of shit. <laughs> but what I'm saying is there are certain directors who excel at that part of the game. And Neil Marshall, for some reason, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but either way, it didn't take on this project. You know, his vision was something that immediately clashed with the producers and they clamped down and we get an infinitely worse movie about it. And once again, Hellboy, the franchise is dead because of it. Absolutely dead. There's not going to be a sequel to the 2019 film. Ron Perlman is now 71 years old yeah, and he's probably too old to come back and play that part, even though uh, they can do animated movies with him, which I'm all about and all for. But I mean, like that, that's what it is. You know, we, we talk about this all the time. Lazy Hollywood meddling comes in here and gives us subpar cinema. And that's all this is subpar cinema. When they could have just made everyone happy. And done a Hellboy three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Simple. Th- like, you know, You're printing and, money. Yeah, and and I say subpar cinema, and I, and I found the film watchable. But you know, once again, you just put hit the nail on the head. 
all the fans wanted another Del Toro movie yeah. and Ron Perlman as that character. Nobody wanted a reboot except for a studio head who was looking for a project in the vault he could reboot. And that's it. And so we, we've ended up with this film that doesn't have a narrative purpose. And so we're here, you know, with the death of this franchise. And that, that's what it is. You know, throw your flowers on the grave of Hellboy. You know, it's dead. It's not coming back. It, at least not for another 20 years or another auteur filmmaker who happens to love the character. So good luck on that happening. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, well, well, let me ask you, do you have any other final thoughts to wrap up on on Hellboy 2019 to, to 2004? Uh, I don't think so i think i've covered everything i wanted to cover as far as the reboot i mean it's it's a gritty reboot so it's got that at least we got our show show in there (laughs) very true very true mila jovich still beautiful uh at her age and uh, but just lousy in this film there's so many actresses you can cat cast catch you can cast let's try that word cast to play a witch who's going to chew scenery and mila jovich is not that actress you know i don't know what she was doing in here and why they cast her i hope she got paid a lot of money for it and it was nice to see her not in a movie directed by her husband it's her third time playing a villainess too oh really mm-hmm. i'm trying to think of other movies where she's played uh, uh the villain I know there are some, but I just can't think of it offhand. So, you know, I, I I always like to see her, but she was not at her best here. I don't want to talk about Hellboy 2019 ever again after this moment. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'm pretty sure you could put that quote and write David Harbour underneath it. And it would be the it would be 100 percent true as well. I'm pretty sure you would never like to speak of it, even though he did have some pretty nasty things to say after the movie was completed. He basically blamed the Del Toro fans. Um, and, and listen, like you read a comment in print, it doesn't sound so good, you know, where he blames the Del Toro fans, but he's not wrong. That's why the movie didn't succeed. Those fans weren't going to get on board with the new Hellboy unless the reviews were sparkling. <laughs> they didn't get that. They got 10% of Rotten Tomatoes. Well, it's like wrestling. I mean, you know, you have a guy that somebody tries to shove down your throat and it's not working, but yeah. he's still the champ. What do you, how do you feel about it? Exactly. Yeah, you, you, you boo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you boo. You chant it's, CM Punk. Sorry, it's the way fans. Yeah, it, work. it's just it's just it's just the way it goes. But the one thing I did want to ask you is, which makeup do you think ends up looking better at the end of the day? Hellboy. The, well, they're both. Hellboy. Sorry, yeah. Hellboy two thousand four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're both Hellboys. But two thousand four. Yeah, I was gonna, which is the sexiest Hellboy? It's smoother. It's more defined. Uh-huh. Um, although. I do like how big the horns are in the Hellboy 2019 version. Yeah. Uh, and I think they even added some scars to it to make it a little bit more weathered, which I thought was a good idea. Yeah, no, I, I think that is one of the things that, that, that does help. Um, but, you know, that leads me into the, the last slam I wanted to throw upon this movie, which is, you know, you write a screenplay and you do a reboot and you want to try something different. So I have no idea why this movie tells the same story about Hellboy discovering his lineage uh, as someone who's going to bring apart the end of the world and tell that same story with the same imagery from Del Toro's movie, except done worse. I I mean, I'm flat out aghast at that. I mean, use the original script if you want to do that. But I mean, from the same boy, pardon me, from the same perspective of Hellboy's origin, I mean, that's feels the exact same except for Thomas Hayden Church showing up in a couple minor differences and a worse-looking Hellboy baby. 
And but then at the end of the day, this narrative is almost the exact same as what we got before. And it just draws even worse comparisons when you didn't have to, you could tell any other story in the Hellboy lore. This was the one story that somebody already covered. Yeah. You don't do that, especially when, I mean, they literally end you with the same way. It. Yeah. He snaps the horns off and the, the crown fades away. You literally have the shot in both movies and it's ridiculous. They even thought that that was going to work. You know, I don't care if it's the greatest Hellboy story ever told in the comics. You find another way to do it. You do something else because this just wastes our time. Well, do you want to know how this uh, movie stacked up and as far as user reviews? Tell me. Okay. So Hellboy 2004, 4.5, 81% on a Rotten Tomatoes, 6.8 on IMDb. So it's got a 4.5 user rating. This is a one-star review, which I had a hard time finding, but I found one. Where do we start with, with an offering like this? I nearly said film, but that would be going a step too far. The only thing hellish about this film is that it is certainly a marriage made in hell between nothing and nonsense, baloney and balderdash. These films should carry a psychological health warning so as not to damage one's spirit to the point where one might believe that all good filmmakers have left the planet and their resources have been handed to the dunderheads who have make this classic piece of trite garbage just like its sisters in arms. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, God. Yes, he makes the comparison to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Sweet Jesus. They are neither science fiction nor fact, entertaining nor thought-provoking, humorous nor weighty, but lay in a twilight zone devoid of any and all accoutrements that entice people to give up their valuable time, sit in the darkened room, and generally be more enlightened, enlivened, or happy at the end of it. If we, we could award turkey points for films like this, this would be a turnip, as we would go... We would gone through the turkey, ham, potatoes, sprouts, gravy, and all the embellishments before reaching rock bottom. <laughs> no, okay. First off, unlike a lot of guys who give a one-star review, I actually kind of like this guy's review. I don't agree with it, but this doesn't mean I don't oh like gosh. it. I, I can like a bad review to a movie that I don't care for. This homeboy went all in. He didn't like this movie at all. He's <laughs> wrong, but he did not like this movie. But I at least chuckled a bit at some of his takes. However, if we're going to talk about the original film reviews, I do have just something to cleanse the palette. Let me get close in the mic so you can hear that bass. Um, I feel like I'm a rock DJ when I get in. Like This is Leonard Skinner on 97.7 The Bone. <laughs> this is uh, the greatest film critic who ever lived, Roger Ebert, and I'm going to read you just a couple things from his review. Hellboy is one of those rare movies that's not only based on a comic book, but also feels like a comic book. It's vibrating with energy, and you can sense the zeal and joy in its making. Of course, it's constructed of nonstop special effects, bizarre makeup, and preposterous storylines, but it carries the baggage lightly. Unlike some CGI movies that lumber from one set piece to another, this one skips lightheartedly through the action. And in Ron Perlman, it is found an actor who is not just playing a superhero, but enjoying it. Although he no doubt had to endure hours of makeup every day, he chomps a cigar, twitches his tail, and battles his demons with something approaching glee. You can see an actor in the process of making an impossible character really work. Roger Ebert fucking loved this movie. Yeah, he did. Uh, Roger Ebert gave this movie three and a half stars. That's very good. This was, um, I I ended up, (laughs) I only discovered this because I went back to watch his uh, top uh, movies of 2004. It was, did not make his top 10, but he mentioned it in his other notable films. 
And I was like, oh, I had to go look up his review, and it's really glowing. Guys, head over to RogerEbert.com, check out his review of Hellboy and its sequel, which he also very much liked. And um, seriously, just read more Roger Ebert. There's nobody to replace him. Okay, now we have Hellboy 2019. Lay it on me. 3.1 user review, 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. Honestly, a little 5. low. 5.2 on IMDb, which is high for me on IMDb. Yeah, IMDb is pretty high, but that Rotten Tomatoes score, I, I wouldn't say this movie is that low. But Here is a one-star review of this movie. By the way, the subject of this review is, this is now the worst film I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere there's a monkey at a typewriter claiming plagiarism. I really don't know where to begin with what what I hated about this film. Simply put, I would say imagine seven seasons of Game of Thrones lore and plot twists condensed into two hours via a series of flashbacks and added dick joke humor. I imagine my review will be removed, but I'll add that the creators managed to include two that I can recall. Child abuse jokes, because you know that's always funny. Oh yeah, that's right. That is in there. Yeah, but he's totally right in the he, sense he that he is saying that taking Game of Thrones and and, and condensing it into two hour movie, that's exactly what this movie's doing. Yeah, no, he's I, taking all these premises yeah. and putting it all in one little movie. Yeah, let's just shove twenty years of comic book right into one two hour movie and hope for the best. You get a thousand monkeys at a typewriter. It was the best of times. It was the burst of times. I mean, it, I mean that really sums it up. That's how I feel about all those screenplays that came in, just shoved together to make this movie. Before we go, I thought we'd do something a little fun mm. um, regarding Ron Perlman and David Harbour. Ron Perlman and David Harbour, both of whom portrayed Hellboy, were born in April. Perlman was born on April 14th, and Harbour was born on April 6th. This film made its debut on or around both actors' individual birthdays. The film premiered on Harbor's birthday, and the film was theatrically released two days before Perlman's birthday. I just thought that was really oh, weird. Wait, what, that, that's, a, that's a nice fact. That's a good find. <laughs> yeah. That's a good find. I'm going to drop that on somebody in a party, and they'll look at me like, please stop talking to me. <laughs> You've been talking about Hellboy for 40 minutes. I was like, I have a podcast that's even longer, jackass. <laughs> so that was Hellboy. Yeah. Um, God, I love the original film. Go check that out in its sequel. Also, by the way, we didn't mention Selma Blair at all. She's fantastic. And God, she's so pretty. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to get that in there because I love Selma Blair and she never got her, her due in Hollywood, in my opinion. That's Hellboy. Uh, let me know that I'm a Selma Blair simp by uh, emailing us at grittyrebootcast at gmail.com. That is the best place to get a hold of us and let us know that we suck or, or conversely, you think we're not bad. Yeah. Yeah. That would be nice to hear some feedback. It would be a change of pace every now and then. Rate us on all your podcasts. Yeah, please uh, give us five stars on, uh, on your podcast. If you give us four stars at this point, I'm just glad to accept anything. Um, also, you can follow us at Gritty Reboot, and that's at Instagram and TikTok. I update TikTok almost daily, so you can come there and see my low-quality memes and promos and clips for these very shows that you hopefully listen to. And um, we're also on Twitch. That's right. We also are on Twitch as well. You can look us up at The Kitchen Ace. I play under that, and I usually cover uh, zombie games and uh, Donkey Kong Country with my daughter <laughs> every now and then as well as a change of pace. So uh, look us up, but uh, as far as Hellboy, we are out. Yep. See you guys. <laughs>